Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about chaos. So I was interested in thinking about chaos because I feel like I do so many public lectures and my audiences are, they feel chaotic. Their energy is chaotic. They feel like this political moment is chaotic. They feel like Trump is an agent of chaos. Uh, they feel like this historical moment for America is illegible and it makes them feel out of it makes them feel out of control fundamentally. So do you think that this is a moment of chaos? I don't know. To me I think it's just an extension of the structure that's been happening for a long time where people who have never been able to achieve power seeing it crystallize uh, at the top levels of government. Yeah. In a way that hasn't been as apparent as it is now. So no, I don't think it's chaos. I think all of this has been, institutions have been in place for this to happen yeah. for, for a long time. Like if you don't have a course set for you and you don't have rich parents and you don't get into elite colleges, um, whether your parents pay for that path or not. Or they commit uh, a crime to get you in. Sure. <laughs> There's a, a real lack of structure uh, and support for a wide swath of our population. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that's happening right now that makes people feel chaotic is that they are watching the dismantling of institutions in a way that they could not perceive as having an antecedent. So they... They can't pinpoint Reagan, and they can't pinpoint slavery, and they can't pinpoint Andrew Jackson, and they can't, they cannot pinpoint any historical touchstones because their history is so shitty and their geography is so shitty. Um, you know, to be able to make a narrative arc for the moments that existed that helped build this massive, you know, snatch of wealth. Mm -hmm. And so I think that they, and they don't know what's coming next. So I think that that makes them extremely nervous and they can't imagine what will come next because so many values are uh, quote unquote under attack and the institutions are being transformed and or being demolished. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the organizing skills to be able to weather it as, as they would if they had a union to help them make sense and to build collective strategy to challenge the robbery that they feel is happening. Whether it's from the right or the left, the feeling that they're being they're being robbed is what is the common denominator. They have the potential to have those organizing skills, but they're exhausted, they're overworked, they're under edge. Yeah, they're under edge. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, there's like a cultural narrative I don't want to call it brainwashing, but... It's alienation, though. <laughs> and so then it's hard to get out of that system of values. And it's hard for them to get out of the belief that they're going to prevail. You know, that they're working really hard. There's like an ethical center for Americans. That if you work really hard, you are going to get what <laughs> you deserve. And that doesn't happen. 
pan out a lot of the time. No, it's very weird, I think, for adults mm-hmm. to continue to cling to that particular myth that America is America. Yeah, but they, but they I think, cling to it because they fear chaos. You know, chaos is the dismantling of, like, that kind of subscription to the, like, what I'm doing every day makes sense. And it makes sense, you know, that I'm, all this hard work that I'm putting in makes sense because there's, like, a positive outcome. And there's, like, an ethical center to what I'm doing. And I think chaos is an important feeling for a lot of folks. I don't want to, like, encourage people who are, like, have an economic dependence on their job for their family to like embrace chaos but also to like understand that no one's going to support them and often their hard work is going to go unnoticed i mean it's weird though to say that it went in, in within a country whose primary identity is founded on revolution revolutionary politics because revolution is the fucking embodiment of chaos it's like oh we're going to destroy the identity that pre-existed us and grow something totally new in its place totally new obviously is relative and also obviously colonialism and conquest is a major part of that so i'm not i'm not defending it i'm just saying that for a culture that sees itself as revolutionary the fear of chaos is also weirdly ironic, right? Because it's like stasis at all costs, stasis at all costs. And so the default is not transformative social behavior or collective action. It is, it is, you know, predictability and fake notions of security and legibility and, you know, shrinking oneself into the smallest box possible as long as it remains legible to the larger culture and not standing out for any sort of social reprobation. That revolutionary start of the United States is kind of mythical. Like, oh yeah, all they paid, are though. Right. <laughs> so, let me tell you maybe that was the basis of the United States, but like, a ton of slaves were, were a part of the re- Revolutionary Army. They hired drunks. They, like, manipulated people into joining the Revolutionary Army. Like, yeah, no, not a lot of janky. people... <laughs> a janky. Not a lot of people were like, we're willing to accept a lot of chaos into our lives right now, you know? The government at that time did not honor <laughs> uh, the point, the position of the revolution. But also, it's like, it's also like... Is there really a distinction between revolutionary politics and reactionary politics? And because they seem closer rather than further apart, and I do think that this is a reactionary moment that we're living in that is so deeply steeped in white nostalgia and uh, fear, fear mostly, that the motivating affective landscape in the U.S. has changed. So for the Obama administration, it's like hope, 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 hope. And now it's fear, 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 rage, 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 rage. And so I, it's not that I'm surprised that people feel so jacked up right now that everything is chaos because all of the, all of the institutions are changing so quickly and the norms are changing so quickly that I see why they're insecure about it. But on the other hand, I just think that they... I, my my sadness about it is that they're not going to be able to seize the opportunity to transform institutions or to replace institutions or demand different institutions or any of those things because it is just a reaction to the tweet of the day, right, from Trump 
or from or the policy shift or the changing course because it's it's norming us to such a rapid pace of destruction whether or not the things were good or bad that are being destroyed is sort of immaterial because the pace of culture is changing the pace of the news or the pace of you know the reaction is so radically different now than it was for Reagan or it was for Kennedy or it was for Truman I think it's good though because I think it's like created a lot of humor and humor's been like a source of mm -hmm. reaction for people who don't feel like they have the power to react like on an institutional yeah. yeah and I think the internet has like it has a, a good natured anarchy and a corrupt and reddit <laughs> and hn yeah, sure so. uh -huh. and even facebook but also it is a site of a lot of chaos and like memes if you're like reeling through life and you're like you don't feel like you have a center there are a lot of memes that can connect you to like none of us know what we're doing what's going on we're really mad that we are in a ton of debt from going to college. And Nobody's talking about freedom. I mean, that's the thing is that there's a lot of this chaos talk and a lot of panic. And well, it's, it's, and it's all like, how do I make myself feel better? Yeah. Not like, let's create a community and work through this in a productive way that benefits all of us. It's like, this is really fucking shitty for me. So I'm going to go home and get on the internet. And I, I feel like this is harder for white dudes because they have no culture of their own, right? And they're also alienated and separated. Um, and it's very hard for them to build community because it's so competitive and terrible. Um, the way that, that white masculinity is conceived often in America. And I, I think that um, the lack of a therapeutic collective culture for groups of men right now is extremely heightened. So there's been a lot of attention on it. And I think that you see higher rates of uh, depression and anxiety among men right now because masculinity is, is changing and there's no way to talk about it productively among individual men. Whether, you know, the scholars are talking about it mostly to themselves because they can't do outward-facing public scholarship. That's another rant for another time. And so instead, the reactions are to try sometimes to hold on to a legible discursive form for the human that is retrograde and is racist and sexist and violent um, as a response to an unknowable future about the self that is ungrounded and unspiritual and not connected to others and is not focused on compassion or care or kindness or love or whatever. You know, this is, I think, a moment to think about how the chaos is producing different conditions to read um, the culture as a more promising space for human connection uh, as a response to the insecurity that the political situation is shunting on to the entire culture, whether or not they support the president. I mean, I think there there have been moments of chaos, and I think the reactions to those moments of chaos have uh, generated a lot of art and beauty. I mean, the reactions to World War II and that and modernism and poetry and literature in a post-World War II America and Europe, both. Obviously, there was a lot of devastating poverty and a lot of rebuilding. And I don't know how much the rebuilding contributed to a better I have a story to society. tell you about the suburbs. Right. <laughs> but, Let me tell you about Levittown.
But the architecture and the art, um, there were a lot of positive outcomes to other political chaos in the past. And I think that's possible here. I do think some kinds of forms of art reject chaos, and that may not be... And some forms of art can, like, be restrictive and perpetuate systems of violence. But I also think, you know, there are plenty of art forms that embrace chaos, and and I, as a comedian, I know that a lot of the work that I try and do and that people that I perform with regularly try and do embraces chaos. We have a couple of comedians that are you know, quite improvisational, and um, it's almost like a dance, too. And that's becoming more popular in comedy, like just extreme forms of performance and comedy and, like, falling, and <laughs> that's kind of coming back into favor. And that also was popular in post-war, so moments of precarity, you know, there's a lot of, like, physical violence that then becomes funny again. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, there are aesthetic interventions into chaos that are useful. Punk comes to mind, but mm -hmm. but I would rather have people not dying, uh, you know, for, you know, morta you know maternal mortality, <laughs> you know? Sure. If I, if I have my druthers about it, the precarity would not be the source of humor. It would, the pain would not be the source of the aesthetics. It would be pleasure and joy instead. Or at least as much and as much no. <laughs> bounty. I just feel, I don't think people can feel joy. You know, I talked about this in the first couple of seasons a lot because obviously my orientation is to build architectures of joy and play. I don't think people can feel they don't they don't see joy as a touchable feeling. I think I think I think men in particular do not touch joy. They're not taught to touch it or produce it for the consumption of others. But I also think my mom is constantly complaining about people. And she's like, what is it about people these days? They can't follow through and they don't show up for each other and they don't do loyalty. And, you know, sometimes it's a generational get off my lawn complaint. But more often than not, I think she is trying to describe her reaction to what is living amongst a bunch of dissociated people who are fragmented selves, who have not fully integrated into an intentional, you know, personhood where they are just reacting to random stimuli every day, whether it's political news or the workplace or, you know, um, spinning out in relationships or unmet needs or inarticulate desires. All of those things I just think are producing an extremely schizophrenic subjectivity, and I mean that in an intentionally psychological way, where it is difficult for people to focus enough on integrating, you know, their person in a way that is uh, stable and that is flexible and that is playful and that can manage the stress of uncertainty, especially in American public life. So I feel like people feel more chaotic um, because the uncertainty is so great in so many arenas. And again, that's regardless of political persuasion, I think the Tea Party and white supremacy and all of this white nostalgic crap is fundamentally about a chaotic and anxious whiteness and white masculinity and white femininity and white heterosexuality and white nuclear family and, you know, fantasies of of the nation that, that are, are fundamentally recognizing that America is browning and will be majoritarian brown, you know, by 2050 or whatever. And that is forcing... Forcing a dissociative identity 
that white people never thought that they would have to come to grip with because they thought they would control capital forever and they would control the borders and they would control all these things. White people might have thought that, but they also had, most of them, had an unrealistic idea of the power that they actually had. I agree. And there's no, like... There's not. It's empire in decline. The precarity that people are feeling right now as a result of immigration status or police violence or maternal mortality or rape or blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff, I think, is contributing to um, an entire culture that feels extremely anxious and avoidant and incomplete and uh, who feel like their needs are just grossly unmet in any way. And I feel like since I'm in, you know, I'm in the university setting, I see it all the time with my students because they don't know how to mate and they don't know how to, you know, date and they don't know how to friend. And they have a very hard time creating deep and lasting and meaningful relationships of any kind, but especially around sex. And so they feel completely unmoored and chaotic and un it's not, it's, it's so much beyond uncertainty. They have no sense of who they are or what they should be doing from the micro moment through, you know, imagining one's life cycle. They cannot do that because they do not have the skills to build long lasting, meaningful relationships. And so they feel constantly out of control. And that's a problem. <laughs> it just seems like yeah. it's a problem that is at the level of the like cellular level of the individual. And it's one that's at the highest intellectual level of conceiving a nation state or a government or any other kinds of, you know, um, institutions. I would love to talk about like a lack of control as like a source of joy, mm -hmm. but I understand there's a lot of privilege in that. Yeah. Just, like, being able to sometimes, like, lose control and the pleasure in that, like, that isn't available to everyone. Think about people who go to Costa Rica and take ayahuasca, and that's a goop. Like, a very Gwyneth Paltrow, she's never done it, but she now she's saying that that's something. And I know we've... That's when you know something is a place of privilege where you're like, okay, so a loss of control, and you have, like, a trips that are that you pay like a thousand dollars to like make sure you don't you can be out of control but you're still being babysat that's not available to everyone people don't even leave the country people don't even leave the place that they were born i mean it's also really ableist too sure but somebody asked me the other day about the lure of illicit drugs and i just laughed and was like it is about exposing fundamentally to the self that security is a complete illusion and that the self is not this, you know, sure. discrete thing that there's an intentionality that has to go into producing a mm -hmm. whole realizable self. And so people do that as escapism, but also as a form of exercising a different kind of control over their fear of the unknown. And, mm -hmm. you know, one place that I think this conversation is really going to come to head, especially around the healthcare debates, is around physician-assisted suicide and about thinking through dignity and death as a way of reimagining the human. I think that conversation is long overdue and will be a huge part of certainly my, I think, aging my twilight years in American public policy. I think we're going to get to that point where people can face death in a way that allows them to expand their notion of life 
so that it doesn't feel so chaotic. I think we're at a moment where there's going to be a reckoning with, authentic, with authenticity that is going to focus a lot on Americans in particular and their avoidance of death and their avoidance of grief and their avoidance of uncertainty in ways that are going to propel the conversation into new directions around public policy. That's one place to kind of transform our notion of chaos and to use this as an opportunity to really recalibrate our sense of care towards others. I agree. And I'm glad that you use that as like an entryway for the conversation because death is kind of a consistent common. It's a, an anxiety that we all have in common. And facing that anxiety gets us to face other anxieties. Like our struggle with mortality has a lot to do with also our interest in being important and feeling important and feeling powerful. And like believing that we're going to die is important. It's definitely, you know, undercuts narcissism in some ways and like delusions of grandeur. I think that like starting from that point where it's like, first of all, you're mortal. Everyone dies. Kind of tying things to the body and to the individual level, I think makes people understand that they're not any different. But I, but that, that's, that's than anyone else. That's the thing though, that that I think the 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 misrecognition of this moment as a chaotic one is producing is the dissociation not just of multiple selves within the person but also between the mind and the body mm -hmm. so that people are um, unable to return to the body as a site of pleasure or pain or control. That's what the all the abortion stuff is about right now is about fundamentally alienating uh, women from their bodies in a way that undermines their political power you know fundamentally. And so yeah I, I think a return to the body is really important. Um, it'll be very, I don't know, reading some of the stuff about the singularity and Kurzweil and, you know, and the posthuman and the, especially a lot of the stuff that's coming out of disability studies, I think is really interesting and it's really interesting because it gives us different, uh, better perspectives on embodiments that create opportunities for transformation rather than reifying ableist or traditional notions of identity that are predicated on violence. Mm -hmm. and there, there's, there are opportunities there that are emerging between AI and disability studies and, um, and critical race theory um, that are going to help us navigate that landscape. But fundamentally, the U.S. is having to reckon with the fact that American life is a death cult. You know, whether it's mass shootings or the refusal of health care for the fucking country or dead moms and kids or stealing the brown babies into the tents and sending them into sex trafficking. The whole fucking thing is a death cult. And that is the major, I think, spiritual reckoning of the decline of American empire, whatever we call this moment in retrospect. The smash and grab capitalism and the... Uh, border walls and the bans and the, all of the punitive social policies fundamentally about a death cult. And the sooner that we get to stripping that ego stuff away and managing the cultural accountability that the country has for structural violence, starting with the genocide of the Native Americans and slavery, the sooner that we're going to get to another side of the chaos that's much more integrated 
national self or a citizenship space or loving kindness or I, it doesn't matter which vernacular you use but it's all the same stuff right how can we create a healthier culture you have to do that by taking the ego out of the equation and managing social accountability widely distributed for pain and violence yeah well, it doesn't seem like chaos is a path forward really it's just a way to like it shuffles the cards <laughs> Right, and that's some, what I'm saying. But usually at the top. It's like a launching off point, I think, from like whatever attachment you have to the current system as it stands. And then you make space for yourself to like accept uncertainty and accept like a change in your status or the status of others or the way that you think about yourself in relation to other people. Yeah. And it's the culture at large. So it's like a launching point. It's important for dismantling like whatever attachment you have. I'm of the opinion that the Trump administration in some ways has some value because it is forcing into high contrast a conversation about wealth and values that no fucking Democrat had the guts to say at any fucking point in the last, I don't know, 75 years right? Give or take. I mean, LBJ tried. Kennedy tried a little bit, certainly with space more than almost anything else, maybe foreign policy in Africa. But I just feel like the contrast is so great right now that it's a crossroads to redefine the values of the culture in ways that are more equally distributing resources. And then it's ethical and incumbent upon everybody to drive every fucking conversation to that end goal. And that the chaos is producing different kinds of not only alignments of power, right, where you see Republicans critiquing Trump and moving to the left or whatever. That's useful as a realignment, but that's just a part of politics. The larger question is how do you take, you know, the destruction of institutions as a way of mobilizing people towards different values that change their behavior? And if that can be done, then I think that the Trump administration does a service to the, you know, to the long game in disrupting people's comfort with shitty, janky, bullshit domestic policy that is really not at all guaranteeing justice or liberty or equality or any, any, any certainly not freedom. Um, and I think that there are ways to think about the chaos that are productive if people can get out of their own asses about it. And also if there are ways to have them see their precarity as connected to other people's precarity in a way that transforms the way that that violence is being shouldered by the most vulnerable in the culture, whether that's people with disabilities or queers or trans people or poor, the poor, black bodies, certainly black people. I think there's a way to reanimate, if I could use a zombie metaphor, to reanimate values that we haven't addressed in a really long time because people have been so wedded to, you know, sort of the bureaucratic stasis mm -hmm. of this generic liberal language. You know, when I feel chaos, I take a lot of pleasure in spending time, like, on routines. You know, mm -hmm. I make coffee every morning, and I there's, like, a routine in me, like, grinding the beans, <laughs> preparing the pot of coffee that's, like, a shared resource. And so even amidst the chaos, and I feel it, there are, like, ways to ground. Yeah, for me, it's clearly intimacy, you know. I, I feel like because people feel so 
chaotic right now, I'm being sought out more mm -hmm. frequently as the grounding agent, you know, for people to reorient the self. And so intimacy for me is clearly the corrective to the chaos, 100% all the time, definitely 100%. Can you imagine Donald Trump making a pot of coffee for anyone? No. Is that a thing that you can imagine him doing? Is this a thing that you can imagine any of our presidents He, he doesn't do doing. joy. <laughs> he, Barack Obama did joy. He did yeah. a lot of joy. And he also did a lot of body work. I mean, the pictures of him surfing and stuff on the paraglider or whatever it's sure. called. I mean, he did, and he loved to dance, and he loved food. He loved cigarettes. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he had embodied pleasure that was public and then also stolen moments of private pleasure um, that I think are really useful as a counter as a counter to Trump. Trump does not do joy. Uh, he, he doesn't have it. He... He was stunted. He, he, he did not have a healthy childhood. He did not have access to a full architecture self. He's emotionally 14 fighting in the backyard with the neighbor kids. When my kid was little, she was like, do you know who Trump reminds me of? And I said, who? And she said, Scrooge McDuck. That is the correct assessment of both his emotional mm -hmm. maturity and his priorities. You know, she could recognize that as a, you know, as a kindergartner. The fragility, I mean, the defense, the constant defense of self, I mean, that it's not fun for him either. Somebody just today was asked about him and his cat, that he fired from his cabinet, and it was asked about, um, you know, why do you think Trump did X, Y? And he said, I don't know, I'm not a child psychologist. And I thought that was a nice, you know, framing as, you know, as a, a slam on him. Because there is, there is a naivete to him and a ruthless pettiness that is extremely underdeveloped. And I feel like that, the reason that he is so frequently caricatured as a body is because he cannot perform a mature persona in any way. And so he gets reduced to his body because he is so facile as an individual because he's, he's so emotionally immature. So, you know, kids are going to shit the bed and they're going to dump their toy box out and they're going to get into the pantry and dump all the fucking Cheerios all over the floor. They don't have the impulse control. And so there's utility, I think, in thinking about him as emotionally childlike because kids are fucking chaos and so they're agents that disrupt routine and normalcy mm -hmm. and sleep and you know disruption is sort of what children you know are seen as often um whether rightly or wrongly and that i think is how a lot of people perceive trump even certainly within his own party but i just i think that the response to his breaking the norms and disrupting expectations needs to be seen with wider eyes about what that can free us to do. Like what, how can we utilize the potential of this genie that's been let out of the bottle to reframe the mission of a supposedly liberal democratic culture? I mean, okay, what, do you, what does it mean to really reclaim liberalism when you see all of its fascist excess on display as this man-child shits the bed every day? I think it is important to have a, a mission towards liberal democracy from, like, witnessing his chaos. But also, I don't want to give him a ton of attention. 
Oh, yeah. And he obviously craves attention. And I don't want to give anyone who is an agent of chaos attention that they don't deserve, especially when we're talking about mass shooters. So I think a lot of it is like a cry for attention and notoriety. And that's like a thing where it's like, I guess I have to create chaos for anyone to like. That's because the needs, primary needs are not being met. Right. So what I like about watching this, the Christchurch shooting just happened last week. And so what I like about watching their prime minister is that she's publicly performing empathy mm-hmm. and care and connection and intimacy. And they don't show the shooter. No. They don't give him any. They like blur out his face. Uh-huh. I, part of it was for notoriety. He yeah. live streamed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He put it up on his Facebook page and then 8chan, which is notorious for putting up white nationalist content. Saved it and continued to repost it. So part of it was, like, about visibility. But part of it is also about an affective identity of a people. And it's easier to orchestrate an affective identity for a nation when you're a tiny little island, right? Versus a giant polyglot space like the United States. It's easier to do. I'm not saying it's impossible. But I do think that the shift from Obama's hope to Trump's greed has created a distinction that is worth marinating on as we think about what are the qualities of leadership that follows this shit show. You know, what, who follows this and what, because it seems to me that the next person who, you know, becomes the mythical symbol of America needs to be able to do public empathy and needs to be able to do care and needs to set an affective tone that recalibrates the nation to a different sort of space and that everybody in the community needs to move that towards an affective space that privileges freedom and justice, you know, over, you know, just this ego-driven mass consumption moment. I mean, I, I don't see way. anyone in the field like that. And Klobuchar being like an egomaniacal jerk to her staff. You know how much of that is just just goofy, one-off sexism. It's, that's, it's hard to know. But also a lot of it's based on, like, you know, what she thought she had to be to like grow to the position that she's in now you know there are a lot of like i guess i just have to talk and act like men that we've talked about before sure especially her generation there's no doubt in my mind that leadership has to be reconfigured around a generation that understands debt and technology and environmental distress because one thing that we haven't talked about is environmental chaos which is fucking happening and it's going to get way worse, and the resource shortages and the resource wars are going to get horrific, and the mass migration and the die-offs are going to be huge. And so, you know, the only way to prepare for that is to actually talk about it instead of censoring the language and not producing the reports and censoring the scientists and trying to kill the science foundations and suppressing the information. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know that there's not anybody in the field. I don't know that. It's too soon to tell. That, that we're not going to get candidates who can perform care as part of their public persona. I think it's much more likely in younger candidates than old. So Yeah, but Bill Clinton could perform care, like, in a performative way. Well, only but was comfort. It, he could only, yeah. call him the comforter-in-chief because he could grieve. And so that's a useful thing. Presidents need to be able to do that. The current one cannot do that. But, I, but I'm talking about a much more, a wider and broader range of emotions that, that, Regardless of their sex, gender, race, they we need a more expansive notion of the human. <laughs> or right. we're going to get a more expansive notion of the president 
as an empath, regardless of their identity perspective. But I would like there to be pressure to orchestrate a different kind of emotional field because people would feel less chaotic inside of their skins if there were options available for them to perform wholeness in ways that were not so fucking narrow and patrolled by social violence. And so, you know, in some ways it's chicken egg, right? You can't just have one influencer at the top, you know, redirecting affective energy for an entire country. Exactly. It, it happens with the president, but it can't just happen. And so the question is, how do we talk to people so that they understand that a, a healthier, more integrated, you know, person is produced through, you know, these social welfare policies and these orientation towards others and, you know, these ethical perceptions about care and, you know, and justice. And, you know, that's a large social transformation project. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the antagonism about race and immigration has to be erased, I think. But I mean, that's going to come to a head. The environmental destruction is going to force huge conversations about borders and about migration and about resources and about refugees. I mean, it's coming. And so it's hard for people to think to move between the self and the large scale catastrophic climate change stuff because also they're fragile about that. But it has to be done. So in the same way, you know, that I think that, you know, the death cult end of life stuff is a place to reimagine public policy um, in this moment of feeling like chaos. I also feel like climate change is the other place and that the, the older generation refuses, you know, the baby boomers fucking refuse to talk about climate change because they created it, right? Their consumptive lifestyles mm-hmm. and their crap values put us in this position and so they don't want to take any accountability or responsibility for it and they suck at math and science so they don't understand how it happened. Um, So I think climate change will be a place too where there will be a realignment of values and you know it remains to be seen how that goes but it will be a moment of chaos where this kind of decisive conversation having needs to take up more public space. I mean people won't even give up their hamburgers. They like think it's crazy when I suggest that you only eat meat on the weekends. You know, I know. people have tied their identities to like consumption in such a like fundamental way that it's really hard to untie them from parts of their identity that are actually connected to consumption that's actually really harmful for the environment. Yeah, but I mean, it's going to be a disruption of the supply chain that's going to cause the reevaluation if people don't take a proactive step on the front end, and they're not going to get any more vegetables <laughs> because we're not going to be able to import them because of famines and because of drought and because of, you know, hurricanes. Yeah. And I mean, it, that all of that systems level earth stuff is going to, is going to create mm-hmm. the kind of chaos that will absolutely fundamentally shift values. Unfortunately, will also shift power usually aggregated to the top. And so, you know, this is the moment to intervene. I hope, I hope people can get out of their own, personal precarity in some ways to have large-scale conversations, especially when they had the privilege to be able to do it.